I am Citizen 44. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 57, and I am back in Ashland. I am no longer in Moscow, Idaho. I came back about a week ago, and I'm uh, hanging with my people here. I'm back with the kids and Val, and uh, doing that now, which is super fun. I could not be any more grateful or happy. Got a big show today. Fantastic guitar player, good friend, Mr. Jeff Pivar. Jeff Pivar, a local favorite here, plays with all kinds of people. It's great to have him here on the show. Also have a special guest on the show, Mr. Tommy Two-Tone, who is very popular in the 80s. His uh, big hit single was called Jenny. Maybe you recognize this. Uh, we also have a couple of other good friends on the show. We have Mr. Rich Reese and Mr. Mitch Mills, a new friend. Mitch and Rich, they're here. They're going to have a little fun with us. And we have my son, Sam, catching up with Sam and school and all that kind of stuff. So let's get right to it. Here we go. Who are you texting? Owen. What about? He was talking about a speech and debate lab that we have to do on Wednesday. What's the lab? Uh, it's for Parley, and it's just more practice. What's Parley? It's a impromptu style debate. What so is the word Parley? Parliamentary. So it's a speech and debate event where there's two teams of two people. You get your topic about 15 minutes ahead of time, and you have to make your argument against it. You either the af or neg, affirmation or negation. So an affirmation in a case like, should the government ban professional football leagues like the NFL due to injuries and other reasons? Affirmation would be, yes, they should, and negation would be, no, they shouldn't. You have to come up with an argument. You have to take notes on the other people's argument. It's something like Lincoln-Douglas where a lot of the time the debate is based off of morals and you have time to prepare. With Parley, you just go from the facts and whatever you know. And what are the facts? Aren't some facts speculative? Do we know for sure that they are what they say they are? You have to use a source if you're going to quote something directly. You have to say where the source comes from and who the author in some cases. But could the author potentially be discredited if investigation was done to find out whether or not it was true or not? So do you yeah. ever really know for sure that you're telling the truth? No. So the debate thing, you actually have a different set of principles in your mind and what you think is your truth or what you say is your truth versus other people that would debate you. Yeah, so there's a lot of debates that just kind of spark out in class with people's different opinions on things. Whenever there's something that is opinionated and we have to formulate opinions about, we talk and discuss as a group. That was more of a beginning of the year thing. Now we learn about the basics of speech and debate and we apply that to making our own speeches and learning how to do debates and doing events. The thing that I talk about a lot now is free speech club. So I'm running a free speech club where people discuss politics and the purpose of the club is to give everybody a stage on the political situation we have going on at the high school, just people talking about politics and being able to voice their own opinions on certain topics without getting backlash. It had a pretty good turnout the first class and I hope we have another good turnout next time. What's a pretty good turnout? I got a head count of about 25. More people started to show up towards the end. The enthusiasm in the room seemed pretty good. 
a lot of people don't really feel comfortable with being able to talk about their political opinions because a lot of the time they get shut down and nobody will really listen to them, which is one thing about Ashland that I would definitely not like to see happen for very long, which it has grown in recent years, is the extremely polarized left without giving people on the right a chance to speak a lot of places. On show number 52, I had Marla Estes and uh, Rob Schlapfer. They run a couple of local nonprofits. One of them's called The Weekly Talk. He gives a talk, I believe, at the Medford Library. And then they do this other thing, Bridging the Divide. They pick a pretty polarizing topic and they bring people together to give them an opportunity, like you are, to have a reasonable forum to learn how to communicate together. Rob Schlapfer is a former pastor, cool dude, hip dude, smart, leverages a lot of real good data and intelligence. Give me an example of one of your debates that you've had where a topic was given to you, you were super intrigued by it, and you crushed it. Well, we've done a few practice rounds. I haven't done a full school event yet. One event where I did really well was an event where we talked about gun control. I think the reason that I did so well in that one was because I actually did really good flow notes, which is where you write down what the other person is saying. Not word for word, just like generalized statements, writing down whatever facts. I think I was partnered with Owen. We were going against another two people from our speech and debate class. The result was we just had more facts than them because me and Owen are also really interested in that topic and we've done our research. So just using past knowledge and past articles that I've read before, we were able to formulate a pretty concise and convincing argument and they didn't really have enough evidence to disprove any of the stuff that we said. Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Oh yeah, that'll be good on the show. <laughs> Maybe Pepsi wasn't a great idea on the show. <laughs> okay, thanks Sam. Uh, okay. Hello? Tommy. Yeah. It's Mark Ahrensberg. Hey, how you doing? Good, brother. How you doing, man? Well, I'm a little burned. I took a red eye from Oregon to Pennsylvania. We're playing the state fair in Pennsylvania tonight. So I was just taking a little nap, and it's time for me to get up and put on my rock and roll panties. I appreciate that you were uh, willing to do the show. How you feeling, man? I'm all right. Just have a cup of coffee and... Uh, I play the first show, but it's raining like crazy, so I don't know what's happening. Anyway, I'm a happy guy. It was one of these state fairs, and they had a tractor pull in front of us last night after the rain, first rain. It's a mess out here. You've been playing a lot lately. Yeah, I've had a pretty busy summer here. It's heading on into fall, so I seem to be back in demand. Your last show was Flip Flop Festival? No, I've done a couple since then. I played in Denver three days ago. What was that gig? Part of the Rick Springfield tour. Me and Rick and uh, Willer Boy and Jim Blossoms. It's a good lineup. That sounds super fun. Was that the first time you guys all played together? I've actually never even seen the Jim Blossoms, and I really enjoy them because I love twang. Got the twang. Plus, I think the guy has a somewhat with a distinctive voice. I don't mind saying I think that guy is also has a really distinctive voice as a singer. They're yeah. all real nice. Yeah, for sure. How has the music business treated you lately? Well, I don't work at it hard enough. Um, you know, I have a software business, and I make music, write songs, but I don't do all the Facebook kind of stuff that I should do to be popular these days. But still, I am finding out I'm a legend, so... <laughs> I mean, I remember in 1981, I was wearing white Capizio shoes and yellow pants and 
I was thinking of getting some Capizios again. Those are fun. The last person I saw wearing was uh, Peter Wolf. I saw him in Summerfest last year, and he, he's still wearing them from the, like the old days. He had tight black pants before anybody else. We all wear bell bottoms, and he had tight pants. <laughs> Musically, my favorite times was the 80s. Not many people will agree yeah. with me, but I think it was one of the most fun times for music. Yeah, it was a special time, all right, and I'm lucky to have been there. You know, I'm trying to be an 80s artist, but I'm not really. I was just there, man, and I'm there now, so I have to force me to do old songs. Because I have a lot of new songs I want to do, too. So. And I want to do more shows with 90s guys and everything. And I like broad groups, you know. If I put a tour together, I'd have, oh, just all kinds of different bands on there. And uh, I think it could work, but I don't know. It's probably hard to commit, convince people. I think you're a pretty good draw yeah. still, brother. You just got to connect with the right folks, and uh, people are still coming out for music. And they're certainly still coming out for you, I can see. They're coming out again for me. Uh, there was a period there when I could sell out every other town, and no one would show up at every other town. So someone has a song that everyone loves, but it's generation of all home watching TV. Now it seems like they're out again here. That's nice. What drove you into the software business? Uh, I just uh, thought I would be uh, a teacher. So I tried it when I lived in Tennessee. You know, I have a degree in educational psychology. I'm the world's worst teacher. Uh, I was sarcastic and negative. I could talk now, as you can hear, but for years I could barely talk because I couldn't put my words together. And in programming, you get to practice a lot. You say something right. You say something that's wrong. You go, this can't possibly be wrong. There's no way it's wrong. And you beat your head against the wall and then find out it is wrong and it's your fault. So I've learned a lot about life from programming and kind of hid out for a while because I was such a poor communicator. But now I'm the old storyteller. I'm starting to play a lot of solo shows and uh, tell stories like the solo guys. I've seen a lot. And uh, I like talking, so it's very quiet for a long time, but now you can't shut me up. Everything in its time, right? You were just not ready yeah. to communicate that way back in the days, and maybe you just did it through your music because it was a better vehicle for you. Yeah, that's what happened. I was the shyest guy, and we formed this band, and I went on stage and took over. Everyone goes, how did he do that? Yeah. So I came alive. The other half of my brain woke up. Before that, I think I was sleepwalking for a year it was only when i was on stage but now i feel like i full-brained a lot of the time i'm gonna look outside the other rains coming here while we're talking yeah yeah cool <laughs> i mean i think that's interesting that you were a, a shy quiet dude how many in your family brothers and sisters and such i come from big family six big catholic family older sister and five boys i was the shyest one i guess but the shyest person from a family from the east coast move out west and suddenly they think I'm obnoxious. <laughs> I go, no, 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 you need to go to a bar in New Jersey with me. The guy that insults you, that's who you want to talk to. Insulting is a compliment where I'm from. Well, that's why everybody wanted Don Rickles to insult them. Right. I had a bass player like that. I could never insult people on stage because I had that little bit of something that would piss people off. I had this bass player stand up Steve and this jazz man. And he didn't sing or anything, but I gave him a mic just to insult people, and they loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I would never do that. I had a show last week with uh, Brian Howe, who, oh, who's hilarious. the master of insulting his musicians on stage. 
He literally is the Don Rickles of rock and roll. I went out drinking with him in Las Vegas once, and it was just tore me up. He was really funny. We were peeing, and all of a sudden he goes, Ah, there's blood in me, Pierce. And everybody <laughs> runs out of the bed. He's actually a very nice guy. It seems like he's calmed down quite a bit. Yeah, he is. He says he also has a totally different persona on stage than his quiet, homebody self that he is. Yeah, it builds up in you. Where do you fall within the six kids? I was the third. I had an older sister and brother. My older brother and my dad were these hilarious comedians who talked all the time, (laughs) following in their footsteps. I was very quiet. Are they still around? My sister is. Three of my brothers are gone, so it's just one brother and one sister and me now. And I'm the only crazy one. We had us, my sister and brother that are alive were totally sane, and the rest of us were all nuts. Um, but somehow, I mean, a lot of people are trying to die or something. I'm trying to get away with having fun here. So you were essentially the middle child. Uh, kind of, yeah. That older sister and brother. And the thing about it is, my sister, who looked like, to me, Grace Kelly, was a teenager in Texas in the 50s. When I was three and four, she'd come home with our friends with the latest Elvis EP, and I'd get pressed into dancing with them. Went all through the 50s, through my big sister's eyes. And then my brother was in a big musician in the Beatle days. He was a bass player in a band. And so I was always around people playing music, but I just played in my room. So one day I just went out. In 1970. No, about 1971 in Sonoma County, California. We hated all it was by San Francisco. We just hated all the music. This was kind of pre-punk thing. We could make better music ourselves because these guys are all all this egomaniac, long hair shit. And I don't really like guitar solos, not like guitar typing. So as I started the 50s rock and roll band, and went on from there. What year were you born, Tommy? I was born 47. I'm 71 years old. When I made Jenny, everyone thought I was 24, but I was really 34. And I always looked really young until one day it caught up to me. I looked Dick Cheney or somebody. <laughs> but I'm rocking. You are. Again, you know, I'm impressed with these guys like you, Brian Howe, 65, that you guys, thank God for muscle memory, can still go out there and totally throw down. And you sound great. Your voice sounds excellent. So clearly you've sort of taken care of yourself in some way. No, I was faking it guitars and now I can actually play and stun myself with how much I've changed over the last five years in my singing style. Rick's a big fan of my singing. He says, how do you make things sound so honest? (laughs) I don't know. I just keep doing it and it keeps coming out. I think age has something to do with it because you are more relaxed. It's technique too. I, uh, like when I was trying to make a comeback, I had a cool band about 86 in LA and everybody was singing like David Bowie, and I know I just couldn't do it. And I'm going, wait a minute, I sang bass in the choir when I was a kid. How come I singing up here? <laughs> but it took me about 30 years to figure it out, so now I can sing low when I want. That's cool. Are you enjoying yourself more than you ever did, performing? Yes, I'm having a wonderful time. I can relax now. I could always do pretty exciting things, but a lot of times it was, I was so tense and nervous that I never knew whether it was going to happen. Now I can just kick back and relax. Like the other night, singing in Denver, which is a mile high, used to just wear me out. You have to run backstage. They have oxygen and everything up in Colorado. Right. And I just sang my way through it. I'm only playing 20-minute sets here. So oh, okay. Still, mile high, that 20 minutes is like singing for an hour. 
Yeah. So what did your dad do? What was his thing? My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, he was one of the great generation. He got called up twice. Uh, he was a pilot in World War II, and then he came out. He was a chemist. We lived in Philadelphia. He worked for Gopalan. He one of those guys that they called him back up for the Korean War. And by the time he got out of there, he had four kids, so he stayed in. It wasn't something he meant to do. And, you know, a lot of military kids moved every three years. I was lucky enough. We moved to Texas, and then he got sent off to somewhere that he couldn't take his family. So I went all through grade school in one town. And I went to high school in Montana all through one school. So I was lucky for a military kid. Then we moved to Tokyo the day I graduated from high school. And that was during the Beatle days. And there, the top of the pops played live. And, of course, all the Japanese could get a Beatle haircut in about 10 minutes. And on the corner, they sold all those cool Beatle shirts like mauve with, like, three buttons on the button down, the top collars and stuff. So I got thrown into that. And uh, my dad just passed. Three months short of his 100th birthday. So I'm hoping that I can uh, keep up with him. Sounds like you have longevity in the blood. Uh, yeah, we have slow heartbeats. I have like a 58 heartbeat. So You're practically an athlete. Yeah. What was it like being in the music business back in the day when you were killing it? I mean, you must have been pretty much handed anything you wanted at the time. Uh, no, the only thing that we did get, because we were so different, me and my partner, Jim Keller, I mean, I'd played in bars for 10 years, but it been in the 70s, I kind of went to school. I had country bands, swing bands, reggae bands, and R&B bands. Didn't play any rock and roll until about 1977 and came back to San Francisco and started playing. And everyone told me I was new wave. Well, what's that? So they got signed and they just couldn't figure out what it was because we didn't really play that well, but people hummed our songs the next day. So they just left us alone, for better or worse. You know, we had a great first album, second album. And then they gave us too much rope. Our third album, which I should have knocked out a couple months and gone back on the road, was my big concept album. It's called National Emotion. I think about 20 people have heard it. And uh, they let us do that, too. I made my second and third album twice. And they just said, keep trying. We don't know what you're doing, but we'll know when we hear it. We're not going to tell you what to do. So that was nice, but I wasn't really a cool or anything. I was just on the fringes and just somebody who had a different point of view that every once in a while I would connect. Like when Cheap Day came out, she started playing again recently. I hadn't played it for 30 years. It's- time you heard me on the radio, Cheap Day was bootlegged off my record before it came out in 1980. This was long before Jenny. And, uh, it's just, there wasn't anything around like it. So I do think that one thing I can say is there isn't anybody that sounds like me. There's no doubt about it. And that's a very cool thing because there's plenty of people that sound like other people. I appreciate your music and I did then and I still do now. I'm still a fan. So it's pretty cool that you're still throwing down after all this time. Well, I'm trying to be sane about it. I'd like to do it another 15 years at least. <laughs> Wow. Can you imagine so, being 80 up there doing that, though? Uh, I couldn't, but now I can. Maybe not band. I think play more solo kind of stuff, but I can imagine being the old storyteller and singing. And I'm not getting any less radical, so I'm, I just turn on my phone and start singing in the car, and all this stuff comes out that I can't wait to record and show people. Sounds like you got a boat in there. That was my alarm, too. Oh. Wake up. Good job. You woke me up earlier. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that was better that way. I got me going. 
Okay. I got to start thinking about my show here. It looks like it may be on. It's not raining. <laughs> Tommy, I appreciate that you spent the time, and uh, I appreciate that you're still going and that I can uh, turn other people on to you who may not know who you are. Are you down in Ashland? No, I'm actually in Moscow, Idaho now, doing some kind of other little wow. weird adventure. Oh, okay. My kids are still there in Ashland who miss me terribly, I'm sure, but... Oh, yeah. Rich lives there now, right? Yeah, Rich is in Ashland, and he's a very close friend, and uh, I'm very appreciative that he hooked you and I up. I've been kind of bugging him about it for a couple of months. Yeah, he's been trying. I'm I'm hard to nail down. I really enjoyed this. In case you didn't know this, I use interviewers as free psychologists. (laughs) Have a great show tonight. All right. Take care. Take care, Tommy. Bye-bye. Is it morning? It's a musician's morning. Oh, that's right. Because you know what? It's always morning until it's evening for me. What does that even mean? Well, you know, admittedly, my mornings vary. And this has been somewhat more historically because there's been different periods in my life that mornings were afternoons, if that makes sense. Because you get up late in the day. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, as I increase in knowledge and evolution and age, I really love the morning. So... I'm up earlier now. Well, don't you know that's part of it? You know, 80-year-olds get up at 4 o'clock I'm in the morning. I'm not 80, No, Mark. I know you're not 80. Okay. Where's this all going? Nowhere. Good. Nice to see you. How are you, Mark? I'm good, man. It's good, good to see you, Jeff. It's nice to be here. You've been asking me to do this for a while, and yeah. I've heard such great things about your show. Really? And, Who have you talked to? Well, you know, while we're here, I want to thank you for the work you did on my debut CD from the core. You were the art director. You were the creator of Where Things Go, and I'm really proud of that CD. Thanks, man. That's something that I wanted to do my whole life. That was like serious bucket list, and not only dear friends, but even my family were wondering if I was ever going to get something out there. And the conundrum for me about that, since we're talking about it, because it, it is a huge thing for me, I'm such a diverse musician. I love so many different styles. I write in so many different styles. So it's like, do I include this myriad of musical interest on my debut CD to try to encapsulate who I think I am as a musician? Or do I just kind of you know, go one direction, which would not be as juicy for me. I'd feel like I'd not be representing myself correctly. So as the karmic wheel turned, I get a phone call from my friend, Greg Frederick, who you know, dear friend of ours, wonderful musician, uh, incredibly talented dude. He was producing a video on the Oregon Caves for PBS. And he asked me if I could write some acoustic guitar music for this production. And I agreed. And a few days later, he called me back and he said, listen, if you want, we can record in the caves. And I just felt this other voice say to me, Jeff, 
go to the caves. Do not, under any circumstances, do any ideas of what you're going to play. Just go there and play. very cathartic, profound experience of going into Mother Earth's belly and improvising this music, which originally it was just going to be some music to be a background for a PBS documentary. And after we recorded it, Greg called me and said, listen, the people from the national parks really love this music and they wanted to know if you'd be interested in putting it out as a CD. It wasn't until that point that I realized, oh, maybe this is going to be something bigger than I thought. And all that music was improvised in three hours, one song after another. I had no idea what I was going to play. I was more so thinking, I want them to have a little bit of a smorgasbord of types of material to choose from. So something mysterious and something exciting and something this and that. And influences came not only from all of this myriad of wealth that I've been inspired by, but I'd like to think that the earth and the caves were talking to me and I was channeling stuff from India. There's a little bit of Ravi Shankar on one tune and just all these different influences. One friend said to me, were you from Russia? And I said, well, yeah, actually my descendants were during the early 1900s and I don't know the exact history because a lot of my descendants were kind of nomads. I mean, they were around different places in Europe, but my grandfather left from the port of Odessa to go to South America. This is around 1910. He earned enough money to bring his wife to New York City where they were reunited after seven years of not seeing each other. And my father was born nine months later. So there's one tune on the record, a friend of mine says, God, it just feels like this Bolshevik Russian bluegrass or something. So the fact that this cosmic happening unfurled to turn into a debut CD that I had no idea it was going to be that when I was recording the music. So when Greg said to me they'd be interested in having this released, I decided, well, all right, I want to take it home and salt and pepper some other stuff because this was really intended to just be atmospheric. And if this is going to stand alone by itself, there needed to be some more melody on top of it. And 
It just happened so organically where I'm playing most of the instruments, but I did bring in a few very special guests. Crystal Reeves plays some violin, a couple other friends of mine who I've done some touring with, and then of course John Anderson from Yes. Unbeknownst to me, here I am in the caves, and I had no idea in three hours I was writing my first CD from the core. When I'm out on the Crosby tour, we're selling a bunch of those. So uh, I'm very proud of that and just wanted to thank you again. No, for... my pleasure, man. Also, Inger's artwork was involved, so That's there's a right. whole other personal aspect to the project. And for those people who might not know, Inger Jorgensen is my wife. We've been together about 15 years now. And uh, not only is it the best thing that's ever happened to me, she's an incredible artist unto herself, a painter, a sculptor, a, a musician. We have a number of side projects, including Zeptrix, where we play Hendrix and Zeppelin. We have our own band where we write songs together. She's had Love Bite, that's a funk band. And uh, besides that, she's becoming a very successful sculptor and artist. She's got Enclave Studios here in town, and uh, she's got an art opening coming up in October there. And then she's invited to do a big sculpture show. This is in Palo Alto yeah. in April of next year at Bryant Street Studios. And she's actually been selling her bronzes. Well, her stuff is beautiful. I, I went know. to the last show at Enclave, and I'd actually never been there before. Yep. And I was seriously blown away by that space, her yeah. work specifically. Yeah. It's so exciting to be in a household with inspiration and talent brimming out of the uh, windows. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very exciting time in my life, I got to say. Did you come off a tour? So I just got off of about two months with David Crosby, and here's a guy who... I really do adore. We've been friends, and it started out where it was just Crosby and Nash and I, because I opened for them with my friend Mark Cohn, and we were doing a little bit of a run opening for CSN. When was this? This was early 90s, about 1990. And uh, Crosby pulls me aside after about three gigs and says, you know, Jeff, Nash and I have been watching you, and we think you'd be the perfect addition to our duo when we're not working with Steven. And while my mouth opened a drop to the floor, I think I said, you know, Dave, I've got some weddings back east. I don't know if I'm going to be able to. <laughs> no. So we started off doing some trio gigs with the two of them. And actually, they gave me a song list. And I went through, you know, learning a bunch of these classic songs that either of the two of them wrote, which is a very long list. Yeah. And then they decided about three shows into the tour to rip up the set list and ask people to raise their hand and request songs. So we were playing songs I had never heard. Fortunately, I have a thing called a volume pedal, so it's not like I have to guess what the chord is. I can kind of play some kind of uh, ethereal weaving of notes until I kind of understood what the mm. so you chord fake sequence it you make is. It? Exactly. Oh. And that's my career. Well, you clearly have made it. Well, I've been very fortunate, and I used to say lucky, 
but I don't use the word lucky because I think luck can be blind and fortune is something you manifest through your dedication efforts. and efforts. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I agree. How long have you been playing professionally? Well, I think I played at the Jewish Center when I was 14. Where? <laughs> in Hartford. You know, this is kind of a joke. I started playing in clubs when I was 15 in the Hartford, Connecticut area. And yeah. that's where you were born? That's where I attempted to grow up. What yeah. does that mean, attempted? Because I'm still in the process of... Uh, of course. Yeah. Are your parents still around? No, unfortunately not. They uh, both left here too early. My mom had a tough time. It's a long story, but I take so much from them. They're always with me. And I am so much a product of what they gave me. I, I was very fortunate, even though my family broke up at a very young age for me. I was 10 when they divorced. It was pretty gnarly, but the guitar was there. And, um, you know, uh, things have a way of working out. And at a certain point, you have to decide if you're a survivor or a victim. And that's what I had to do. And the guitar just became this place where I could pour all my confusion and sorrow and happiness and started playing in clubs when I was 15 with older musicians. And uh, I'm more of a natural than a studied musician. I do understand music, but it's not like I sit around and play scales or get very technical into modes and Phrygian and all this stuff. A lot of this stuff I kind of understand in my own way. You know, I've met musicians who are much more scholarly than I and can read notation way better than I. For me, if I hear it, I can kind of play it. You know, at a certain point, we're all telling a story, you know, and it just depends on how you articulate your story. So when were you born? Born in 57. I'm okay. 61 now. Born in Springfield, Mass. At about nine months into my first year, my parents moved to the Hartford area, and I spent my early days in Hartford. How was that? It was awesome. I made lots of friends and got into a, a little garage band when I was probably 11, something like that. When did you first get your hands on the guitar? I have two brothers who are just dear, dear, amazing people in my life, Stephen and Peter. Stephen is the oldest, he's 10 years older, and Peter is the middle brother, he's six years older. And Stephen acquired a guitar when he was at college, and one summer he brought it home and he went out to do his summer thing, and by the time he got back, I had already learned more than he had learned in the past year, because wow. a neighborhood kid down the street was a guitar player, and he gave me, I think, two or three guitar lessons, and he showed me well-respected man from the Kinks, Please Please Me from the Beatles, and maybe that's it. I had the transistor radio glued to my ear every night to go to sleep. And back then, radio wasn't segregated the way it has become. It was Motown and Johnny Cash and the Beatles, everything, all the top 40 hits. So there was a lot of music going on, and in the early 60s, it was quite a renaissance. So I had all this stuff going on in my head and I was able to acquire these books that actually had pictures of chords above it. And I just taught myself chords and I was off. The rest is me just teaching myself how to play and watching people and emulating. I've never taken any lessons. Were your parents musical? My mother was a piano player and my father and mother both loved music. My father was a big Sinatra fan. So there was always music in the house, Gershwin and Nat King Cole and it All was the cool. standards. Yeah. I was very fortunate. And even though the family went through tough times emotionally with the breakup, we still figured out a way to stay tight. And um, I worked out my stuff with my parents. I was able to weather the storm. What did your dad do back then? 
he was in the menswear business. He was a necktie salesman. A necktie salesman? Yep. That is so specific, you can't even say that anymore. Yeah, I know. Talk about of the times. And was it like the Fuller Brush where he went around with his neckties? So here's what the deal was. It was called Wembley and Resilio, which are two companies. They were, I think they were based in New Orleans. New Orleans, I used to call it. Were there Jews in New Orleans? Yeah. The Pulitzers were the big honchos. As in Pulitzer Prize? Well, as in... Sam Pulitzer. I know that was my father's boss. And there were big sales meetings. And in fact, the first time I went down to New Orleans was because my father was attending a meeting. To answer your question, from my understanding, each salesman would have a region. So let's say we were living in Connecticut. It could have been Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York. And my father would have his swatches mm-hmm. of all the different ties and he would have his accounts. And so he would get in his car and go to the account and say, here's what we have. How many of right. which type do you want? Was he successful? Well, we had food on our table. And my mom did some secretary stuff and a homemaker. Yeah. She yeah. raised three boys. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, you know, as time went on, I realized their relationship wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It seemed to be like the perfect beaver cleaver kind of situation, but uh, other stuff was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was a real slap in the face. And it happened to me too young because I was 10 when they split up. And I was still kind of formulating stuff for me. And I know that it was a blessing in one way because it gave me this hole in my life that the guitar ended up fulfilling and it ended up being a career for me. And on the other sense, you know, I just kind of didn't get that history that some kids did. Even my older brothers, you know, my middle brother was 16 and my older brother was in college when they should hit to fame. But uh, I don't come from regret. Do your own it is thing. what it is. Yeah. And as uh, David Bromberg once said, you've got to suffer if you want to sing the blues. Look, we all have our roads, and it's taken me a long time to trust love. Yeah. And I finally do. And that's about the biggest gift you can get in a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And you look so young, meaning Thank you. you feel good. Yeah. You take care of yourself. Yeah. Your partner takes care of herself. You guys got good juicy juiciness between the two of you. You're loved by your community. You're rocking the thing that you love doing the most. And so is your wife. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? I know, I know. We're riding a beautiful wave and uh, we've done the work. We both have had trials and tribulations and we've both been through divorce and we both just navigate the storms. Yeah. But we both look at the bright side of life and we're searchers, but we're not constant searchers. We're also finders. So it's very exciting. You know, we push. And uh, when we get up to bat, we're always swinging for the bleachers. The diversity thing is awesome. And that's what's so nice about playing music with different ensembles. Everyone brings a different flavor to it. And I'm bringing in that analogy just because it's so much a part of my life. The concept of synergy, it's like, let's just say two totally unique things that exist in this universe coming together and creating a third entity, which is the combination of those two unique energies. And so every combination creates a brand new unique sum of those energies coming together, which is why creativity is so exciting and why this planet is so exciting and why it would be lovely if more people understood how sharing makes the world a better place rather than trying to grab it all. I just consider them malnourished. And ultimately, after getting dragged into negativity and all this 
stuff that's going on on the planet right now, I just find that I'm suiting myself to work towards more positivity rather than fueling more negativity because it's really going to get us nowhere. And you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a utopianistic type of person. I mean, if you're going to have the gumption to stand up in front of people and profess your music or whatever, you got to be a little fucking crazy anyway, or really believe in what you're saying, or just kind of hoping. And all of that is true. It gives you an opportunity to push your limits, which I'm constantly doing. It's almost a, a self-test. Let's see if I can do this one. Okay, well, let's see if I can do that one. When I got asked to play with Ray Charles, that was total happenstance. This is 1984, and it was a Friday afternoon, and Ray Charles was playing in New Haven, Connecticut, and I was living in Hartford, Connecticut at the time, so it's about 45 minutes away. I saw it on the paper. I don't have a gig on Friday. I usually do. I'm going to go down and see Ray Charles. All of a sudden, an hour later, the phone rings, and a friend of mine goes, Hey, did you hear that uh, our friend Morris Pleasure, Mo Pleasure, he's a dear friend of mine, and, and uh, we've collaborated for years, but not until after this experience. He got a phone call to fill in for Ray Charles' guitar player who had left. And so Morris is a multi-instrumentalist, but guitar really isn't his main thing. He plays keyboards and bass and all kinds of things. Anyway, I'll tell you more about Morris in a little bit. So I decided, all right, well, I'm gonna go down early and see if I can talk to the powers that be to see if maybe there's an opportunity to play with Ray Charles. I mean, who knows? The sky's the limit. I love the saying, the only limitation is your imagination. So I go down early. Now, it just so happened that right around that time, I had played on a record for Ricky Lee Jones called The Magazine, and there was a Rolling Stone interview about the record, and it said in the article itself, quote unquote, the graceful pluck and weave of Jeff Pivar's guitar on it must be love, or something like that. So I thought, eh, I'll grab the magazine in case I need some clout, and I brought that with me, and I get there, and it's the afternoon, and I'm waiting around the side entrance of the theater. It was the Palace Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. And all of a sudden, this bus pulls up and musicians start filing out. And I went up to the first person. I said, hey, could you tell me who your band leader is? He pointed to this older gentleman, Clifford Solomon. And I went up to Clifford and I introduced myself. I said, hi, Clifford. My name is Jeff Pivar. I hear you guys might be looking for a guitar player. I wanted you to know that I'm interested. I've played with blah, blah, blah. He said, well, come on in. We're just getting set up for sound check. He said, listen, there's two shows tonight. We're going to get ready for this stuff, and then I'll talk to you on the break. And I said, great. He said, why don't you hang out side stage and watch the show? I said, fantastic. So during the show, my friend Morris, who was filling in a guitar, and I could see he's nervous and his hands are shaking because he's not really a studied guitar player, but he can cover it. And his charts are falling on the floor and this and that. And, you know, he's just having an uncomfortable time. And I'm thinking to myself, I really don't read music. In other words, I would get an assignment. This is the song you need to learn. I'd figure out the song. And that's how I would communicate music versus the sheet of paper. Now, there's two different ways to write down music. And one is notation, which was never a strong suit of mine. And then the other is where you have a roadmap. You have a sheet of music and the bars and what chord is played during that time. That stuff I can do and could do then. So at first I'm thinking to myself, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Animal House where there's an angel and the devil on the shoulder. 
So the devil is going, Jeff, you should leave now. Don't embarrass yourself. You're not going to be able to read this music. You don't read music. And the angel's going, Jeff, why would you quit before you even understand how hard it is? Maybe it's not that labor intensive for the notation. Maybe you get a chance to do what you've always done, which is you bring your own talent to the table and you kind of interpret it. Well, they finished the first set and he said to me, so what do you think? And I said, yeah, I, I'm really interested. He goes, do you have a tape? I go, hmm, no, but I'll be right back. Now I get in my car and I drive to Hartford, Connecticut to insert this little piece of the story. A very important person in my life, his name is Doug Cupper. And in fact, on the first CD, I give him credit, Doug Cupper, Keys to the Kingdom. And the reason why I say that is because he gave me the keys to his recording studio years before this. Here's a guy who met this young guy at a recording session. I was hired to come in and, and help a woman do her demo tape. And he saw something in me and he started hiring me for sessions. And then he said he wanted to become my manager. So we just had kind of a, an agreement. Nothing was ever signed or whatever. But he eventually gave me the keys to his recording studio so I could go in at night and record and work on ideas and develop as a recording musician. And I did. I would go in after gigs at 2.30 in the morning. He'd find me slumped over the console at 8 in the morning when he was coming to work. I had the disease, if you will. Well, those tapes that I did there when I left during that break to go get a tape for Ray Charles's band leader, I picked the bluesiest, gospeliest stuff that I had recorded. I dumped it off on a cassette and drove back to New Haven about 90 miles an hour because I didn't want to miss this opportunity. I turned the corner and there they are getting on the bus. And I said, Clifford, and I hand him the cassette with the songs. And they called me the next day for the audition, and I got the gig. And you played with Ray Charles, dude? I know. And what year was that? We did a number of tours together, but uh, it was like 84, 85, 86. And if anyone ever wants to see anything that I did with Ray Charles, type in Jeff Pivar and Ray Charles on YouTube, and you'll see some of the most cherished moments with a man who is probably the father of music to many. There's no one like him. No one will ever sing like him. No one will ever be as a profound musician like him. I mean, there's, of course, there's Prince and there's Michael Jackson and the list goes on, sure. you know, but Ray was something else. And I learned early on when I started playing with him, I could get Ray Charles to scream in delight with the right placed guitar note and talk about an epiphany for a young Jewish kid from Hartford, Connecticut. I'd play something and he'd go, oh, you nasty boy. And it was like, oh my God, I must be doing something right if I can make the genius squirm in his chair and scream in delight. And some of these videos, you can see him reacting to what I'm playing. He brought me out to his studio. I did some recording with him. And uh, it was an amazing, amazing experience to get a chance to be influenced by and, and be of service to. I quit high school in my junior year, and I don't recommend that to anyone. It just happened to be because I had found music. I wanted to give all my time to music. My parents had gotten divorced, so... I didn't really have the guidance that I could have had in a household that was together. But I knew, 
I knew what I wanted to do then. And it served me because I started my career at 15 and 16 and I was playing music full time. I would do other things like clean rugs and work at a gas station and, you know, a few other things just to take care of my, my car. And, and Is that why you got that carpet cleaner? Yeah. Because you used to do that? Well, it's a funny story. Yes, I had a boss named Spaceman and he was my carpet cleaning boss. And here was a guy who was a musician. The day that I left high school, the next day I was in a crew with Spaceman as our boss and another musician and we started cleaning rugs. And I learned a trade and it was not only a great thing to learn how to do because eventually I became my own one man crew, but it also gave me this very physical job so I had a chance to really work on my aerobics and, and my strength. It's, there's a certain amount of strength it takes to do this. So it's, it's just to keep it really short. This system is the only way to clean a rug. It involves two tanks. One is a clean water tank where you're putting solution on carpet, very little soap involved, and then a high pressure vacuum where you're taking all this stuff out. And of course, this is a little bit of a, a wrap because I would have to talk to people, whether it's a housewife or a husband, why shampooing your rugs is the worst thing you could possibly do. It's like going into the shower, putting shampoo in your hair, letting it dry. So not only does it keep all that crap in there, but anything that might discolor your rug, so I ended up moving out to Santa Barbara a number of years in the time when David Crosby asked me to be involved with his project in Crosby and Nash. And so I'm moving into a new place and I go to secondhand stores, you know, to find furniture and that kind of stuff. Well, I see this carpet machine in the back. There's the area inside the store, which is slightly inexpensive. And then there's the stuff that they put out back. And here's a carpet cleaner, like the one that I used to use. Those things go for over a grand. And I go to the woman, what's going on with that carpet cleaner back there? And she goes, oh, that thing. I don't even know if it works. Do you mind if I bring it in and plug it in? And plugged it in, it worked great. So I gave her 10 bucks for it. 10 bucks? Uh, 20. That being said, I augmented my income when I was younger doing that. Unfortunately, God, I don't know how many decades I've been totally been able to have a living as a musician, not just touring. I'm a studio engineer, producer, writer. I write music for TV. There's a, a very talented man locally, Brett Levick. He and I do a lot of production music together, but I have a lot of clientele. You know, in the past, if someone wanted me to play on their record, I'd get on a plane or I'd get in my car with a bunch of gear, go to a recording studio. Now, people just send it to my house and I have access to all my instruments. Right. So it could be mandolin, it could be lap steel, it could be various guitars. And, and so they have a better experience because they don't have to pay for the studio time. Right. It's been an amazing opportunity to reinvent or to augment how I'm able to make a living as a creative being. And I really enjoy wearing all these various hats instead of having to be in a hotel room and learn someone's songs that I play over and over and over for months at a time, which is a beautiful thing. God bless my friend David Crosby. He saw me early on and had really said great things about me to the press. There was a Twitter recently, who are your favorite guitar players that you've ever played with? And he listed Jimi Hendrix, Ry Cooter, Michael Landau, Jeff Pivar. You know, it's just like, maybe he doesn't get out much, 
But anyway. He got out plenty. Yeah, he got out plenty. He, he put <laughs> Jimi Hendrix on the list. Yeah. He, he knew what out was. <laughs> so were you raised in a very Jewish family? No. For those people who might not know, and this is my limited knowledge, to my understanding, there was Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism being the least stringent, and my family was. But then again, the world kind of broke up a bit when I was 10, and the family wasn't even you know, doing the uh, get-togethers. But that being said, I have great reverence for my lineage and you know it's something my father said to me he goes you know it's really a shame because as time goes on the jewish religion is getting so watered down because most marriages are mixed marriages that being said i have great reverence for all those who've walked before me with world war ii and the fact that my family came from being immigrants are there survivors in your family? I don't know if anyone had to go through that. I think they got out of there in time, but it's certainly possible. But yeah, man, I'm always so excited to uh, have yet another opportunity unfold. And so this gig with David Crosby and Crosby, Stills and Nash, it went on for a number of years from like 1990. And then David met his son, James Raymond, which is a wild story. I don't know if you what know do you mean, that met one. his son? Yeah, okay, so here's the story. So David is 20, he's touring with the birds. He happens to get a woman pregnant and uh, he was a kid. So this woman had the child, gave the child up for adoption and he was adopted in Southern California by the Raymond family. And so James Raymond became a musician when he was 10, not knowing his father was David Crosby. And he was a musician for 20 years when, in fact, it was around the time he was getting married. And his adopted parents said, go to the adoption agency and you may want to find out who your real lineage is. So James' mom, who had moved to Hawaii, had put in a search for him, but legally they could only do it from the child up. So once James went in, they opened up the book and it says his father was David Van Cortland Crosby. <laughs> James had been a musician for 20 years at that point. And he knew of his father. He not... knew of his father. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't a CSN fan right. per se. He was a jazzer. Loved just different styles of music. James had met Michael Finnegan, who happened to be David's AA sponsor. And Michael Finnegan, if you didn't know, is the keyboard player on Electric Ladyland, Rainy Day Dream Away. That's Michael Finnegan. And in fact, it's his chords that he never got credit for. Oh. That ba -ba 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 -ba. That's his jam. Huh. Anyway, so Michael met James and said, you need to contact David Crosby because he's waiting for a liver and his liver is failing and you may not get a chance to meet him. And so it was right around that time that David Crosby was fortunate enough to get a liver transplant and James went to visit him in the uh, hospital. And from what David told me, James came in, you know, this beautiful young guy and said, listen, man, I, I've had a great life and I have wonderful parents, and I don't need anything from you. I just thought it would be really cool if we met. And David was just blown away, and James gave him a cassette of stuff that he was working oh, on. When I saw David shortly thereafter, he played it for me, and he said, I want to put a band together with you and James. And CPR was born around that time, 1998. And we did our first record, and we wrote songs together. So it was kind of like all of our influences. So 
it's like Steely Dan meets Crosby, Stills and Nash and right. blues and this and that. And there's a fun song that I wrote with David. David ended up doing a live radio concert. And uh, we did this at the Whiskey A-Go-Go. And this was a beautiful band. And Graham Nash came and sat in. And even Chris Robinson came up to do a duet with David on uh, Almost Cut My Hair. So this radio show was just killer. And David owed Atlantic Records one more record to fulfill his obligations. Mm -hmm. And so he decided to release this live radio show that we did at the Whiskey as his last Atlantic record. And he was thinking of, well, what do I call it? Now, his guitar roadie, John Gonzalez, who's a dear friend of all of ours, said, well, your first record was called If I Could Only Remember My Name. Why don't you call this one It's All Coming Back to Me Now? Ah. <laughs> so they called that record that. Well, when we were doing the first CPR record, I wanted to write a song that reminded Crosby fans of Long Time Gone, which is, you know, you know, just had a real rootsy, bluesy rock thing. It's been a long time coming, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought, it's all coming back to me now. That's the perfect title. And so he and I did emails back and forth. I suggested, why don't you write a line? I'll write a line. You write a line. So I started with, I've been through rocky waters. I've been over the falls. He wrote, I feel like a pilot in a plane when it stalls. But it's all coming back. It's all coming back. It's all coming back. Back to me now. So we wrote, it's all coming back to me now. And, uh, you know, you never know. I mean, where do you grab inspiration, you know? But I love that title. And considering David's history, he certainly has had a wide swath of activity. Swath activity. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. There's a couple tunes on that first record, that and Little Blind Fish, which are David Crosby, Jeff Pivar compositions. Right. And imagine my joy, my delight in writing a song with this guy who... I started learning how to play guitar chords, listening to and pumping up pubic hair when I was 13 or 12. Well, just the fact that you've had access to these people at the top of their game, mm. but it's only reflective on the fact that you've worked so hard mm. to be noticed by such people. Yeah. Well, you know, and some of it is happenstance and some of it is like, well, somebody got to do it. Well, that was the Ray <laughs> Charles, man. Someone got to yeah. step up and play yeah. guitar for this dude. Yes. Yep. And that's part of your confidence, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know you can throw down like James Brown. <laughs> so you can give it up. You can walk into a room with these people yeah. and feel very comfortable with what you do. And I think yeah. that's super impressive. Oh, thank you, man. You know, I feel very blessed. And uh, I wish the same for anybody, that they find something that they're excited about and that they can't wait to get out of bed or don't want to go to sleep because they're having so much fun doing it. I will say that it's been so lovely because I did quit high school. And a lot of times people go to high school to find out what they want to do with their life. But I knew what I wanted to do with right. my life. And so getting a chance to play with all these musicians from Phil Lesh and Friends, I had to learn 70 Grateful Dead songs for that. I played a tour. It was called The Heroes of Woodstock. And it was Jefferson Starship playing the music of Jefferson Airplane. So I had to learn... 30 or 40 songs of that book. 
I mean, we're talking iconic American music history. All the Ray Charles stuff and all the Crosby, Stills, and Nash stuff. These have been my college courses. So it's not like I left school because I didn't want to go to school. I created what school I wanted to go to. Right. And every day is class for me. Every day I'm learning how to do things that I've never done before. I got asked by a local script writer, Scott Bloom, to do music for a movie. I'd never done a film score before. He asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, yeah. And then I'm thinking, how the heck do I do this? And then you just learn. You teach yourself. That's how I do the show. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of times we'll talk ourselves out of stuff that we can actually do just fine. If I can encourage anyone listening to this to decide that maybe you're way more powerful than you could ever imagine. Even better than that is when it brings people together and it offers other people healing and inspiration. I'll get letters. I brought my son to hear you play and he wants to play guitar now. Talk about the icing on the cake, yeah. man. We're doing these private house concerts, uh, the Stone House, for the community here. And it's a private party, if you will. There's ways for people to find out about it and get on a list. We ask for a donation because it's not a public event. It's so lovely to invite the community into our home. And we do it every month that I'm not on tour usually. And uh, we have this beautiful place to do it. And God, it's just so powerful. We feature a different artist every month. Anyone interested, it's newbohemia at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook. I'm a small town guy. I come from a small town and I love that. I mean, I lived in New York for 10 years and I lived in Santa Barbara and, and that was all great. But I love being in a smaller kind of vibe and, you know, more chill and more walk down the street and people say hi to you. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I love it around here. It's a gorgeous place to live. How long you been here? Well, Inger's been here probably about 20 years. I've been here about 15 years. It's an idyllic place. And, uh, I would love to think that this bubble could go out more into the world. And uh, I kind of pray for higher levels of consciousness that at some point could happen. And uh, I think one of the things that the I Ching says is the best way to thwart evil is through the constant pursuance of goodness. And I think that works. We're not going to change the world, but if we can influence people to consider you know, there's another way to do this. I mean, we might as well have a good time while we're here because we're really not here that long. All right, so just to play a tune, I've got this little lunchbox amp by ZT, and they sent it to me when I was working with uh, Bette Midler, which was very sweet of them. It looks like a lunchbox. It looks like a lunchbox. Yeah, it's cool. And it sounds great. So what I do, even, you know, as I've mentioned, of kind of reinventing ways that I can be a creative being, in the last... 10 to 15 years, I started doing some solo concerts, little house concerts and that kind of stuff. And, and while I enjoy playing the guitar just as a solo instrument, I also really enjoy being able to use the guitar as a instrument that kind of adds on to a rhythm section. I have more freedom to kind of color around the top and around the rhythm rather than having to be the entire rhythm section. So I have a song here that is one of the most beautiful blues songs that has ever been written. And it, it's called Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. It's a Charlie Mingus composition. And this is one piece that I have performed at house concerts and also 
doing opening acts. I, I remember opening for Robin Ford, who's one of my favorite guitar players, at the uh, Rogue Theater. And I, I did get a standing ovation for this solo piece, which uh, blew my mind and made me feel really happy. But uh, this gorgeous piece called Pork Pie Hat, uh, I have a little, bit of a, a little bit of my own addition to the arrangement. And what you'll be hearing is not only my live electric guitar, but I have a little pedal here that uh, has the loop of myself programming drums and playing bass and playing keyboards. So this is one way I can play with myself on the radio. Thank you. 
Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. That's from a Jeff Beck record. It's almost hypnotic. I just try to tell a story and I try to sing with the guitar and uh, it's a vocabulary and it's a, a color. You know, the thing that's beautiful about music, it's like you can be a painter and you could be a singer and you could be a, an architect, you know, all these things all at the same time. There's something about that piece that has uh, so many feelings to it. There is that rock element that Jeff Beck has influenced me and a way that the guitar has a yearning and a very siren-esque you know, and when I say siren, this is more mythological, you know, a yearning to it. And, um, and then me being a guy who's attracted to harmony, it's a beautiful piece because it has a lot of twists and turns harmonically, yet there's this very similar line that plays through these gorgeous chords that are all very bluesy and very simple. And I play it differently every single time. I'll never play it the same way. So I don't really know what I'm going to do. And mm. and that's kind of the joy for me because I'm a voyeur and a participant into improvisation. Right. And so there's a higher power, if you will, or there's something that I surrender to. I, I like this music thing. I think I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> I don't see why not. I mean, I, the vacuum thing, I think, is kind of covered yeah, now. Yeah, you can yeah. get a guy for like $23 right. to do three rooms. We don't need you <laughs> yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Although, do you still have the machine? Of course I do. Okay. Yeah, do yeah. you use it? Do you have carpeting in your house? I, I have some carpeting, and, and uh, I need to use it. Do you it's get getting nostalgic a time. when you use yeah. it? I think I do get nostalgic. It brings me back to when I was, you know, just leaving high school. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this for a while. And actually, the gentlemen that I did this with are all very dear friends of mine. Spaceman has turned into one of the country's most accomplished paintballers. Uh, he had gotten medals, and he has his own paintball field in Vallejo. Uh, his name is Bob Delia, actually. And, and my other friend, Gary Siegel, is an accomplished musician and uh, not only a phenomenal harmonica player and guitar player, but he developed a machine that elderly people could get onto this contraption that is uh, an experience of a motorcycle and there's a screen in front of them and they can drive a motorcycle. It's stationary. Yeah. So it gives these people this exciting thrill. It's a simulation. A simulation. It's given a lot of people joy. He's a heartfelt dude and it was really important to him to try to really nurture this thing and, and get it to the next place and it just didn't seem like there was a lot of people willing to get behind it. But anyway, those are two people. They're still very dear people in my life. And, and actually, Bob, Spaceman, he was a very Zen teacher for me at that point in time in my life. He was saying things to me like, there's the groove. The groove being this state of mind of karma, of good energy, that if you get in the groove, which I didn't even think of this type of more cosmic thought. I was just a kid of like, well, okay, there's a pack of gum and there's the guitar and everything just happens. There's no karmic wheel. There's nothing more cosmic going on. And he had me understand that there's so much more going on in regards to spirituality. It was very interesting that I would stumble onto this when I left a classroom that was pinning a helpless frog so I could cut into it and learn its insides, which I had no interest in doing, and I felt horrible for this poor creature. 
And then I'm cleaning rugs with a guy named Spaceman, and he's teaching me about the groove. And so the groove, of course, can mean so many different things. The groove is so much about the importance of everyone playing together, but the groove being when everything is in tune. And when you're spiritually in tune with who you are, you know, it's an awesome period in my life. It was a real transformation for me because I was taking on my own power. I decided I wasn't going to conform and take apart this poor little frog and learn French and biology. And not to say that that stuff isn't amazing and beautiful, but I wanted to play the guitar and I wanted to make some money so I could put gas in my car so I could get to my next gig and buy a guitar and buy an amp. And it worked out, you know, just all these things kind of fell into place, just like me getting an offer to play in the Oregon caves. And then it turned into my first record. I, unbeknownst to me, those three hours were me writing my first record. I've made friends with the guys uh, String Cheese Incident, and they're a huge jam band, and they have a huge following. I was playing at the same festival, and they invited me to get on stage and jam, and I had no idea what they were going to play. They were playing in Oregon, and I sent a message, hey, you know, thinking about coming up. If there was an opportunity to play, let me know. And they said, sure, just come up. No idea what we were going to play, and it's performance art. And I love that. Yeah. And it's just fake it till you make it. We're not here forever. And uh, I chose a way of life that is being a public servant. I'm a servant to myself and my needs of being a creative person who's constantly reinventing myself and flirting with muse because it makes me feel happy. It makes me feel content. It makes me feel whole to tempt muse and tempt creativity. But uh, the whole other beautiful side of doing what I do, I am here to serve the public. So spreading the news of my life story is part of that. If I can inspire anyone to go after their passion of what they believe in their heart, it's a beautiful opportunity for me. And uh, I'm proud of what I've been able to accomplish. You know, it could have gone a lot of different ways with uh, my family breaking up and, you know, different things that go on in this crazy human life. So it's uh, a beautiful offshoot, you know, to get a chance to tell some stories that are important in my past and to share that with uh, listeners, people who are interested in making their own experience a little wider by listening to these podcasts and being more informed. As I mentioned, and as you know, there's this side project called Zeptrix that plays the music of Zeppelin and Hendrix. And I actually am going to be playing a 90-minute set of all Hendrix music at the Newberry Festival, which is a festival very close to Bend. It's in Lapine, Oregon. And they raise money to try to defeat MS. So there's three days of music, and I'm going to be the closer of the three days playing the music of Hendrix. Now, when I play Hendrix music, I can't help but interpret things my own way a little bit. I mean, there'll never be a, another Hendrix. This particular song, once I start playing it, you'll know that it's this song that is normally called Voodoo Child. And it's a quite beautiful celebratory piece, and Stevie Ray Vaughan has done it. When it comes to the chorus, I can't really wholeheartedly say that I'm a voodoo child. It's more apt for me to say that I'm a judo child. Wow. 
wish I had a lighter so I could hold it up. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, man. He taught us stuff that we still are trying to understand. And that's the thing that I love about the electric guitar, that it is entirely limitless. And you can pour the most intense emotion into the instrument and it'll take it and it'll allow you to go where no man has gone before in a way. I mean, because it's your own personal experience. So that's one of the reasons why I'm indebted to him, because all you have to do is just do whatever you want. There's no limit. Wave your freak flag high. I want to thank you for having me on the show. It's an yeah, honor brother. to be here, bro. And, no, no, uh, it's my honor yeah. to have you here. And we've been trying to make this happen. And yeah. you're a busy guy doing your thing that oh, you yeah. love. Yeah. And I appreciate that we have this relationship and that yeah. you were willing to come rock out for me and, and tell pleasure, me some more man. about you. We say we yeah. know each other. Right. We don't yeah. know anybody, yeah. really. Right. No. We know little fragments and pieces of people's lives. Even yeah. now, there's more information I know about you, but I really got to know a little bit more of absolutely you. Thanks for having me. And, uh, Congratulations to you for doing uh, this beautiful work, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Until we meet again. Yes, sir. All right, bro. Cheers. Bye. Hey, Rich and Mitch. Hi, Mark. New studios up on the eighth floor. We're on Sunset Boulevard. Great to be here, bud. I have to go to Ireland. Are you going to Ireland? What are you going there for? Zach and Dylan, the Zemed brothers have a tour. The Everly Brothers Experience. Yes. We got 11 shows in Ireland, two shows in France, and one show in England. I'm talking to Mitch Mills here, famed guitar player. Why do you know this guy? We have a long, long story. I was playing for a band in England, and we came over to tour the States, and we needed a fill-in drummer. What year was that? 92. Five. Okay. The band Rumble? Rumble, like okay. a fight. So Rich came by to maybe fill in for us to do a couple of shows before we went back to England, and that's how I met him. And then uh, I went away, I came back, and uh, he ended up being a roommate with us. It was like four of us in the house, we all had our own room. That was in Redondo Beach, California. It was Redondo Beach. It was called the House of Pain, because the women that were coming in and out of it, they were all painful. Rich was great at bringing girls from foreign countries and leaving them on the couch crying over him after he was done with them. Do you have a, a small squeaky toy in your pocket? What? <laughs> what the fuck is Citizen 44 anyway? I had no idea what it was. <laughs> so I was trying to figure this out. Mitch, where are you from? I'm from North Carolina, a little town called Mount Airy. Mount Airy? Mitch, what really? famous show is based out of Mount Airy? We all know what that show is. It's the Andy Griffith Show. Yes. No way. Yes. You grew up in, in Mayberry? He grew up in I the original up in Mayberry. Mayberry. I grew up, yeah. The real Mayberry. I actually consider Pilot Mountain, which is on the show Mount Pilot, yeah. that's more my home. When were you so, born? What year? 67. So I'm old. Old as dirt. We raised tobacco. I was allowed to um, play sports and uh, work on the farm. What kind of sports? I like football and boxing. Boxing's my favorite sport. He fought Mike Tyson. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was great to have so many wonderful people on the show this week. First, Jeff Pivar, of course, a great friend and uh, just a super nice man. He actually did that whole show without his shirt on. It was pretty hot in the apartment, but I couldn't run the air conditioner because of obvious noise problems. 
you want to check out more about Jeff, you can find him at pevar, P-E-V-A-R.com. And by the way, on Saturday, March 26th of 2016, Jeff was inducted into the New York Blues Hall of Fame at the Kate Theater in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. Go to pvar.com and find out what Jeff's up to and uh, where he's playing next. I also want to thank Mr. Tommy Two-Tone, who was gracious enough to allow me to wake him up from a nap just before his gig in Pennsylvania. So thanks, Tommy. I appreciate that you spent a little time with me on the phone. To find out more about Tommy Two-Tone, simply go to Two-Tone, that's T-U-T-O-N-E.com. That's Two-Tone.com. Check out what he's up to and shows he's got upcoming. Uh, I want to thank everybody, Rich Reese, Mitch Mills. I want to thank Sam, and I want to thank you for listening to the show. I know it's been a little bit since my last show, but, you know, a little transition, leaving Idaho, coming back to Oregon, all that kind of stuff. But it's all super groovy, and everything could not be any more perfect, frankly. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. I do appreciate all of you listening, whomever that may be. If you feel like showing a little gratuity, please visit Aaronsburg.com. Always glad to accept any donations you see fit. You want to help me out monthly? That would be super. Check out Patreon, patreon.com. That's about it. Uh, Until next week. And uh, thanks again for listening. I appreciate everything, all of it, all the time. Take care. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. I also want to thank longtime supporter Doug Fergus. Lucky Doug Fergus. Was fortunate enough to have dinner with he and his beautiful bride, Suzanne Barraza, who was show number one. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty. The sound of breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Something quiet
That was new friend Mitch Mills on guitar on the track Under the Milky Way. You may recognize that. Popular cover from the band The Church. That was with the band Sugarwall on the album Full Circle. Thanks a lot, Mitch. Great to know you. You nasty boy. <laughs> <laughs> 